I, I hate to have had to shuffle the date because I think it means many people couldn't come. And the reason um, I hate they missed it is because many people, it's on. It's just making noise. Is it helping? Can you hear it through the speakers? Maybe it doesn't matter. The reason I hate that people are missing it, of course, is that a number of people have said, oh, I don't know what to do with this Old Testament stuff. You know, it just seems really, really tough. And then, like, this is the heart of the gospel, don't you think? Like, this is sort of what we're reading. In some ways, you know, um, I, I, think it's, I think it's interesting to think that, that um, th these visions that we get from especially Isaiah are, are so even beyond our imagination today, you know? I mean, the, and you hear more about that. It's just beyond my ability to conceive the goodness of God here that um, I, I, I hate for anybody sort of to miss them. And we were talking this morning, you know, um, some of the things we get out of here are so fabulous and not depicted in any art that I'm aware of. You know, when you go into churches, you see crosses, and you might see an alpha and an omega, and, and maybe you'll see like a boat, you never see a wolf lying down with a lamb and a leopard with a kid and a cow with a bear. That's just, that's just so inconceivable to depict artistically that it's just a brain stretcher, you know? Um, you don't see people beating swords into plowshares and turning spears into pruning hooks. But that iconography is just is something. And of course, our first Advent candle is, is hope. And, and these, these are just readings about hope, right? About, about God's hope being greater than ours. So um, I'm going to do something, a couple of different weird things, if I can. Uh, first is to remind you, anybody grow up doing morning prayer through the prayer book? If you've been an Episcopalian before 1976, that's what you did three Sundays a month. Yeah. And then the fourth, you'd have communion. And um, three of the canticles, 9, 10, and 11, are songs of Isaiah. Um, they include ones like, um, Arise, shine, your light has come, the glory of the Lord will rise above you, which is the inspiration for that song, I want to walk as a child of the light. It has phrases in it that say, like, the night and the day are both alike, because there will be no sun, God will be the glory. I mean, this is sort of an interesting, interesting, beautiful and hopeful image. Um, and it may be helpful then to dial back a little bit and tell you, most scholars will tell you there's three Isaiahs. So when we read one book, one scroll, there's three different authors. Um, how do they know? Um, because of the span of events historically is almost 200 years, and people in general don't live that long. The other reason is that there's a marked difference in themes, in diction, and syntax. Um, happens one, two, three different times. So the one we've read already is usually called Isaiah of Jerusalem. He's called that because he wrote in Jerusalem and lived there. He represents chapters 1 through 39 and probably written sometime around the span 740 to 700, 730 to 700. He's warning the people about the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So that would be like kings like Hezekiah. Remember we talked about last week how the Assyrians came and shut him up like a bird in a cage. Hezekiah had that tunnel. That's how they sort of survived. Isaiah of Jerusalem alive during then. He's the one who writes the things about a virgin shall give birth, and you'll call his name Emmanuel. That comes in first Isaiah. 
image of hope. That's a nice one. He's the one who writes about um, swords into plowshares and, and, and spears into pruning hooks, that weapons of war become, become instruments of creation and cultivation. Interesting image, right? Ultimately, you know that's what happened after World War II, right, is that military technology became civilian technology. It's, it's funny how, in some ways, the Bible understands reality. <laughs> like superglue developed for the military, right, has lots of civilian applications. But, of course, the intent was to seal a wound, right? So you just glue that, and then you don't need stitches. And then it turns out you can glue a cup with that, too, and that, that works out okay sometimes. There's certain things superglue won't fix, like styrofoam. You're probably aware of that. Don't try that at home. Um, so that the, the sword the sword becomes a plowshare, just like the superglue does, and the jet engine does, and sort of things like that, right? Second Isaiah is called not second. We have to use this like pedantic scholar speak to talk about these people. We call him Deutero-Isaiah, which means second. Deutero. Like Deuteronomy is the second law. Deutero-Isaiah is found in our current book, chapters 40 through 55, and he's definitely writing from Babylon. She told you 30 years after the exile. We, we don't know with any kind of precision, but he's writing as early as 590, assuming he was carried into exile with the literate folk, and probably no later than, say, 545. So there's a span. Um, Trito Isaiah, the third one, who's 56 to 65 of the current book we have, is from a similar time span, but again, has an entirely different vocabulary, uh, syntax, and um, diction. Well, that's the same as vocabulary, isn't it? Uh, uh, from, from Deutero Isaiah. And some different themes as well. Uh, this is why scholars split it up. It's harder to see in English. It's easier to see in Hebrew. Right, how, 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 how different the writing is. Um, and what we read the first two days were Deutero-Isaiah, so that's maybe where we should start. And you know, we already heard some of this in Advent, and, and, and these are people that are quoted extensively by the Gospel writer Matthew. The voice of one calling in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. Every valley shall be exalted, and every low place made plain in the way of the Lord, right? Um, anybody seen Handel's Messiah? You know it before. This is actually the first one. This is the tenor song, Every Valley Shall Be Exalted. And what's interesting is that the quote in Isaiah says, a voice of one calling, begin quotes, in the wilderness, make straight, prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew changes it. When Matthew quotes Isaiah, he changes it. Matthew says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, begin quotes, prepare the way of the Lord. Matthew says the voice is in the wilderness. Isaiah says the voice says, do this in the wilderness. Does that make a big difference? Well, Matthew changes it because John the Baptist is calling from the wilderness. And Isaiah, the voice is saying, in all the wild places, make them smooth and level. And this reflects the fact that Isaiah is in exile in Babylon, which is a thousand miles away, and the image is that whole journey is going to be turned into a superhighway because God's return to Jerusalem and the exile's return is not going to be one of these numbers. It's going to be the new I-45, not the one in Houston. <laughs> or the centurion's new 
Not that one, the one we finished from Baybrook Mall to El Dorado, right? <laughs> Just that one stretch is going to be like that, which, which is interesting to think about, right? Because the, the, the goal here is that, is that the sort of the high places are made not low. It's not a reversal. This isn't actually an image of radical equality. Now, now in Isaiah, it's really about making the way of God so that there's no bumps, there's no dips, the road is smooth, fast, superhighway sailing, and, th and that our goal is to get the vehicle of grace ready to move. So one of those good reminders is we prepare the way, we aren't the way, <laughs> and that if we get in the way, we might get run over. <laughs> so, so you want to get out the way. This is important, right? You prepare it and you get out of the way. Um, it's a really interesting image, though, to think that, that God is really not interested in overthrowing the bourgeoisie, because that would look like this, right? God's not interested in, in reversing the fortunes of rich and poor. What God is interested in, in Matthew and even in Isaiah, is about the inequities having equality. And that doesn't necessarily mean, I didn't think, a redistribution, redistribution of goods, I think that has to do with equal distribution of dignity. It's interesting to think about ways that you can interpret just this small phrase. Because um, again, the goal is, is that the people who have resources are not above the people who don't. And that the people who don't have resources are not inferior but there is, in some ways, I think, this equal playing field. If you've suffered discrimination before, you sort of, I think, get this. One time I was pulling up a fence with my dad. My dad really liked to buy strange things. Like when Pick and Save went out of business, he bought all the shelves. So I spent three days loading them on his trailer, and I don't know why we bought those shelves. Um, one time he bought 500 yards of, 500 yard of chain link fence. <laughs> And he didn't just want the fence, he wanted the poles. So we had to pull the poles out of the ground. I was like 14. So we did this, and I got like a thousand mosquito bites in Florida, and I was filthy, and we went into a convenience store to get a drink. It's a rural convenience store out by the airport. And the derision I got from the shopkeeper because I was dirty in the store, I'll just, just never forget it. I thought, you know, you didn't know me. How could you look at me like that? I've been working. You know, it's just like this terrible thing. And, and I wonder if this passage is in, in some ways about that. Because I can tell you the lady behind the cash register was not rich. She didn't have resources of education or money. It, this is one of those interesting things, right, to think about in spite of differences in resources to reach forward for an equal distribution of dignity. We'll pick up this theme when we get to Ezekiel because he says something about that too, you know. But but in the way of the Lord, there's equal dignity. That's that's just a really. It's different from what we've been reading, isn't it? Often what we've been reading is a representation of the dirty reality we know all too well, and this is saying, you know, in God's economy, dignity is not exalted and lowered; it's made plain. Well, I think so. I think so. That's why this, I think this. It's, it is hopeful. You know, what's interesting is it's not, it's not even if people deserve it. 
which is why I think it's bigger hope than I usually do. I hope people get the dignity they, they deserve. I do, because we know lots of people that don't get what they deserve, you know? Like our moms and those teachers we had that were fantastic. You, you know what I mean? Those people that we know often don't get the pay or the respect that they deserve. I usually hope that they get what they deserve. And it seems like God hopes that we think everybody deserves dignity. I don't usually hope for that. <laughs> Hence the theme of, of God's hoping this week, I think. I says, that's just bold. This is, this is 2,500 years old, you know? This is, this is really an image that, that you could think about for a long time. Uh, he's, uh, th- this is the guy who comes up Deuter Isaiah with all the suffering servants. And has anybody heard that term before, suffering servants? Um, so it's, we typically say, oh, like Jesus is a suffering servant. Well, in the prophet, um, probably not. The prophet is probably saying, and you can read this in rabbinic sources too, and sometimes it's very clear, the suffering servant is Cyrus, Cyrus the Persian. Or it is uh, the prophet himself or the prophet Moses or any prophet that, speaks a word, frankly, about what God wants that we're not doing. You usually suffer for doing that <laughs> one way or another. Um, or it's the nation of Israel who is suffering by being in exile. And in some ways, God is going to use even bad circumstances to bring about larger life for people. Actually, those are the options. <laughs> those are the three. And sometimes, sometimes it'll move around even in the same passage as to who the suffering servant is. And it's a really interesting concept that is, I think, probably very related to this idea is that the suffering servant is a reversal of typical hierarchical leadership that says the king is the best person above all others. Instead, the king is the one who lifts everybody else up. And this is what Martin Luther King Jr. said, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. (laughs) Again, this is an inverted um, sort of triangle with the goal, notice, of not staying inverted, but with the goal of making the playing field level. (laughs) And since it isn't, the people up here have the resources to push the ones down here up. They don't have the resources to do it, or they would. I mean, this is sort of an interesting, interesting thought. It's a communism of dignity, right? I mean, that's just really, that's just really interesting. Well, I think that's interesting. And um, it also reminds us, though, I think, that this is about God or it's about sharing life. And so I've told you before, you've been here long enough, that the Elizabethan dominant image is the pelican who they perceived, and they were wrong, um, the mother pelican pricks her breast and gives her babies her own blood in if there's famine so that they can survive it's really critical and i like this image because if the mother did that unto death they'd all die they'd all starve so she shares some life with them and they live so it's not about martyrdom to death it's about sharing your life with other people so that they can live now as a child the image of martyrdom i got was that you do it unto death because it makes god happy and and this is not that image. <laughs> and, 
and, and it sort of reminds me, because um, in the evangelical teenage tradition I got, we were supposed to be hardcore extreme people for Jesus, that sometimes we put ourselves up on crosses and say, look, God, how much I love you, and no one's getting any life out of that, and then we should get off of those. And we should just take ourselves off those crosses because the point is that people get life from our life, not that the giving of our life creates more death. I know that's all tangential, but I do think it's tangential. <laughs> I think it, it touches on the gospel. Does that sort of make sense? God doesn't delight in the suffering. That is just how life is shared. It's almost like the conservation of energy. You know, you can't create energy. You can't destroy it. You can only convert it. Sometimes I think we can just share life. <laughs> you, you, you know, creating new life can be really difficult after we have our babies. But um, and even that was taking some of our life. Let me tell you, and converting it. <laughs> More so for my wife. But I saw that happen. <laughs> and and that is the whole goal of childhood and and, and parenthood and sisterhood and then and then treating your parents with respect later, I think, is, that, is, is to do that takes some of your life resources, but hopefully it gives them to other people. It's, it's not just wasted, it's converted. That's good thought. Notice how different that is from what we read last week, which looked like that, right? We know that all too well. This is something pretty different. This is the guy who comes up with the idea that God is a shepherd. And the people are scattered and God will guide them. So, so Christ the good shepherd, that comes from Deuteronomy Isaiah. This is the one, and this is a lovely thing. This comes out of um, Canticle 10. Um, people are like grass, the flowers of the field fade away, but the word of God remains forever. And then it goes on to say something like, my ways are not your ways, said the Lord, for just as rain falls down on the mountains and comes way down and waters the crops, so will my word return back to me. It will accomplish life. So in our ways, if we don't see a direct result, we, we quit, and, and essentially God is in it for the long term, and God's, God's ways work surprisingly. It was just sort of interesting to think that God's tactics and patience are just fundamentally different from ours. Yeah, this is nice. This is the strongest anti-idol text in the Bible, I think, uh, all throughout. And you know, one we read is consider the consider the woodcutter who cuts down a tree, and a third of the tree he converts to fuel so that he can have a fire, and a third of the tree he builds his house with, and the other third he makes a statue out of and worships, even though he used the rest of the tree to make fire and cooking. And think how stupid that is. <laughs> Um, this is arguably the, not only the most, but maybe the only monotheistic section of the Bible we've read so far. So, you know, Jewish people have the reputation for being the first monotheist. That's probably fair, but it didn't happen till then. It didn't happen till here. Because we've read about the kings of Israel being polytheists and Jacob and Abram being henotheists or polytheists or what have you. But this one's saying all those other gods are not gods. He's not saying they're not, they're not as powerful as God. That's what we're used to hearing. He's saying they're not even real. A strong, strong text. Yeah, I think the trigger for that was 
you know, this is great. I think the trigger for the whole book is probably helpful, and then dialing back to that one specifically. The trigger for the whole book is he probably grew up thinking the way we've been reading in Scripture, which we all know too well. And then the temple got burned down. And how could God live in the temple and call the people and they could be punished? A lot of people said God must be dead or God is weak. And Isaiah has reimagined God. <laughs> in, in the face of crisis, he's completely reimagined what God's like. I actually think he did a good job. <laughs> I'm grateful for his reimagination. I like this one, you know. In terms of the idols and the statues, I, I, I think that's probably, I, I think he's very logical. I think the argument he makes is very logical. How can you make an idol and then you're worshiping something you made, which is inferior to worshiping yourself, which you didn't make? I mean, it is extremely logical. Of course, we know that nobody looked at idols that way. They never have. Nobody ever thought, oh, this, this marker is the marker God. <laughs> Let's worship the marker God. The marker was, was a representation of divinity for them, right? That's always how it's been. On the outside, we say, oh, it's an idol, but for the people, it was a gateway. You know, even when, even when in Greek temples, you know, most priests, they spent most of their day washing the god statues and changing their clothes. They didn't really think they were doing that. They thought representatively they were doing that. Does that sort of make sense? This got in a lot of trouble in church history because the, 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 the Romans had sculptures and the Orthodox people had icons, and they both thought they were doing idolatry <laughs> when, in fact, the sculpture was just like the icon. It was an invitation into prayer instead of the thing prayed to. But I think what Isaiah, second Isaiah does is just, is just he, here he's encountered in Babylon with lots and lots of statues. He's rethinking religion, period, because, well, the answers he's been given his whole life don't work or he wouldn't be in Babylon. He'd still be in Jerusalem. And, and he has this insightful idea about, about statues. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, we know that there's nine sources in Genesis or more, so why are they lumped in one source? Because an editor thought they went well together. And, and I think it's helpful to say that each of these guys, while they have some difference in, 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 in focus, they do have, they have some complementary images, and maybe they were all named Isaiah as well. <laughs> I don't know the answer. You know, I don't know the answer. I mean, the, the, the tradition of compilation in the Bible is mostly veiled to us. We don't always know how we got what we got. We, we don't. It could be that somebody, again, put them together because they thought they were from the same author. But using sort of modern historical critical techniques, we're able to say that's extremely unlikely. And in some ways, uh, you, you know, Authorship is a modern importance, and it never has been before. I wish I had more, like, educated things to say on the subject, but I'm not, I'm not aware that there are more educated things to say than that, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, this is the first person that uses the argument from design. Are you familiar with this, argument from design? This is where you look at how complex and beautiful the world is, 
and you say based on that it had to be created or somebody had to have designed it. The design is so good, there must have been a designer. And I, there's a lot of science and math people who sort of do say it's really hard um, to think that all of this is just simply random. Now that doesn't necessarily mean you're Christian or Jewish or whatever, but there, but there seems to be a coherence and beauty to things, right? And this is sort of what Second Isaiah says, consider the works of God's hands, right? By doing so, then you're able to see the craftspersonship. This is the idea. Um, you hear this a lot in creation science, which is, of course, not real science because it starts with a conclusion and then proves it instead of with a hypothesis and done as an experiment. Um, but, but it is an interesting thing that lots of people, including the Founding Fathers, Thomas Jefferson, they, they, they were designer people. They thought God made the clock and then stepped back and let it run. You know, they're, they're called deists, but they, they thought God made the clock. Isaiah does that, he introduces that. He says something really interesting that I don't like. I wish the scripture said, if you pass through the waters, I will be with you. <laughs> Instead, he says, when you do, uh, which is just a really interesting assertion that you will, and that when you do, it's not God punishing you. You didn't earn it or deserve it. That's very unlike the books that we've been reading, isn't it? You get what you pay for. Something bad happens. You earn that. This one says, when you go through, even as righteous people, I haven't abandoned you. That's when I'm with you. It's a great theological assertion, isn't it? I mean, this is, I, 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 just, I just like the theology of the book. It's just very, very good. God says, I've named you. I know you by name. You're mine. We even get that God has inscribed the people's names on God's own hands. Say, for those people who are against tattooing, God has tattoos. Hate to tell you this, uh, all over God's hands. Uh, but but this, this is this one of these signs of, 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 of covenant and intimacy between God and the people. Isaiah says, things are broken and I will do something new. This is interesting. I won't just restore things. In the new economy, even the jackals, the ones who pick off the weak and the lame, the ones who eat the dead, those will be parts of your family. Now that's second Isaiah. Third Isaiah is the one that says the wolf will lie down with the lamb. So you hear how those are complementary images, but they're different ones. What a radical recreation that Isaiah is offering. Again, I don't usually hope for that. The jackals in my life, I hope God will kill them <laughs> because they deserve that. I would be happy to do it for God. <laughs> this is so much greater than, than I even know how to hope for. So I think it's fair to say we all have relationships that have been strained to the point that it's really hard to imagine what reconciliation and redemption look like, and they're just beyond our capacity to, to know what that looks like. So, so I often, since I can't do it, I assume it can't happen or won't happen. And, and this is Isaiah saying that even the most nefarious ones, God is able to convert. In some ways, that's offensive, because if I'm allowed to say it, I said this on Sunday, there's certain relationships where I not only can I imagine it, I actually don't even want God to convert it. I, I don't actually want something more hopeful. I just, I just want revenge or silence. Like I'd just be happy with that. And, and this is somebody who's saying not to do that. <laughs>
again, this is greater than my capacity to imagine. This, this, this single image is greater than my capacity to imagine. And, and that's why it's Advent hope. I, I, mean, I, think, I think that's hopeful. Uh, God says in Isaiah, I will blot out your trans transgressions for my own sake. Uh, that's interesting, right? It's a sort of this reminder that we get from good Lutheran theology that God doesn't forgive us because we deserve it. God forgives us because God deserves it. <laughs> that is so radically different from what we've been reading, isn't it? It's interesting. My parents are here visiting, and nothing bad to say except my dad decided to tell me today how to preach a good sermon, which is to tell people, if you don't forgive others, you don't get forgiven. And I did say, I've preached a sermon on that topic recently, um, but I did not have that conclusion. <laughs> I, I grew up that way, and my father said, if you sort of believe that, then you have to be forgiving. I, I'm not sure that's true. I think if you believe that, then you're just afraid, because you can never be forgiving enough. Push to its logical conclusion. I, I, I wonder, Again, if we don't forgive people for their sake, but we forgive people for our own, it's just an interesting thing, right? Because we decided to be those people. That's why we do it. Not because they deserve it, because we deserve it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just such a different orientation, right? To think that we deserve to forgive other people. They don't deserve to be forgiven. I think that's right. I don't think you deserve forgiveness. I think it's a gift that you give. People don't always even take it, you know? They don't. I often don't want to take it because getting a gift that I can't pay back is difficult for me. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And honestly, I've tried the poisoned gift of forgiveness where I forgive you, now you forgive me or whatever. Or I apologize and you need to accept my apology. That doesn't even work. All it does is make me more bitter, especially when they don't say, I accept your apology. You know, I go fishing for forgiveness. <laughs> okay. We just sort of interesting orientation, you know, and that's why I think, again, this is, this, this is the interesting thing about the Bible, right, is that in some ways we've been reading a lot about our hopes and reality with a small r that is ugly and nasty and we know all too well, and this is what the Bible does, is it reflects reality. But then we get to read some reality with a capital R, and we live in between those, <laughs> Um, okay, Cyrus is a shepherd, the world is not chaotic, and then, wow, this one's something different, isn't it? The people, the suffering servant, are called to be a light to the nations and to draw them into light. Now, this is, I think, is a different thing than, than oh, we need to save the world because they're all dying and going to hell in a handbasket and they have no light in them. Th th this is about sort of being lights in the world. You know, um, 
this like to the nations thing, I think, could be, could be read as, you know, Christian people are the only hope. But I think in the context of Isaiah, it's a little different, actually. And it comes back to this bumper sticker that I've seen a bunch before. You've seen it, too, the coexist one. You know, where like the T is the cross and the O is the star of David, you know? Coexist. You can coexist with another religion without having any respect or affirmation of them at all. I already know how to do that. This is not about coexistence. This is about mutual respect. It's not about toleration. Well, that's what I think anyway. I wish that bumper sticker said respect and they'd come up with a way to turn those letters into different things, right? I can coexist with my neighbor without knowing their names. I, I often do that with people on my street because we just all end up being busy. You know, I wish it were different, but I haven't really changed it. I guess I just still don't know all my neighbors. But I, but I, didn't, think, I didn't think that's what God hopes for. You know, I mean, I just think that's helpful to think through. And it's here. That God's interested in those people. Being attracted and, 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 and life being shared. It's pretty radical stuff, you know. It preaches pretty well <laughs> in the Episcopal Church. <laughs> High criterion for teachers, those are people who sustain with every word. You ever had somebody sustain you with every word they spoke? Yeah, I don't think I have. I had a few people come close, but wow, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting criterion, isn't it? It's about sharing life. I mean, the best teachers I had shared their lives. They didn't just share their subject matter. You mean the same true for you, I'm sure. A um, couple images, you know, the pit with a capital P is like Sheol or death with a capital D or Hades or Tartarus. That's the place where dead things go. Rahab is not the prostitute. Um, well, maybe somebody asked me that this morning. Why does the prostitute have the same name as the dragon? So Rahab the dragon, uh, kind of like Leviathan. Maybe uh, Rahab, I think Rahab is probably the name in a polytheistic culture of, of, of one of the gods and now is being sort of named you, that name is being used as the representative force of evil and chaos. Of course, water is a cipher for that in the Bible often. Um, we change that name in Revelation. Do you know who the dragon is? Come on, you know it. You know who the dragon is. Really? You don't know? Satan, Lucifer, the devil? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a hard one. You know, We changed the name Rahab into Satan to be the representative named entity of evil and chaos. I just want to make sure you, when you saw those, you knew that other books do that. Um, vocabulary is adjusting because he used pit instead of Sheol. This is one of those clues, right? The Bible's written over time, and over time, vocabulary develops and changes. And earlier, Rahab might have just been called Leviathan. And that, that's a word that we get in some of the Psalms. You'll read it in Job. Parts of Job, very, very old. This one, not as old. This is among some of the newer literature, this second Isaiah. How beautiful in the mountain are the feet of those who bring the good news. Is there anything beautiful about feet, right? <laughs> really, it's telling you that when good news comes, even ugly, nasty, dirty, unclean, sweaty feet are beautiful. <laughs> Which is just sort of a reminder, right, that when our news is good, uh, when our news is good, whew, that's what matters, right? 
being harbingers and bearers of good news. This is, this is really this statement, you know, about, about evangelism and, 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 and bringing gospel bearers and, again, sharing life. It's all sort of wrapped up together. The last one just, to, just that, that I picked out in Isaiah is about that, that little bit from the last Suffering Servant song about his appearance became so marred he wasn't recognized, humanly recognizable. I heard that a lot in the evangelical church as applied to Jesus. And if you see the movie, the, the, um, the Passion of the Christ, has anybody seen that? Uh, it sort of takes that really strongly. You know, Jesus probably was killed about seven times in that movie. Um, and, and, and that represents one understanding that that's meant, that movie particularly is meant to inculcate a sense of guilt positive that's what the movie is meant to do uh, by making you feel guilty for the physical hardships of Jesus and the marring of his appearance but again Isaiah is most likely not talking about Jesus but that but but the nation the nation of Israel in this one who instead of looking like this ends up working like that can Jesus work like that instead of like that? I'd argue that's exactly how Jesus works, and that's why he fulfills the scripture, not literally, but in meaning, if that makes sense. He resonates with that picture in a way that they'd heard before in scripture in a new and concrete and powerful way, and when we say Jesus fulfills the scriptures, right, when they say that, that's what they have in mind is that resonance in a new way, right in front of them. The stories that they heard of old, he's materializing. Maybe that's because I'm, I'm just liberal, but I, but, but I, but I don't think so. I, I, that makes a lot of sense in my mind, you know, because the Romans did not beat people before they crucified, and they died too fast. They roughed them up a little. The point was you're supposed to die really slow. You're supposed to hurt a long time, and if they beat you too much, you'd die real fast. They wanted you to die the marathon death, not the 5K. Any questions about Deutero Isaiah? <laughs> this is a wonderful book, isn't it? It's really so wonderful. So wonderful. I mean, I almost would tell you, this is like the the whole Bible at its best. These readings, just among the best in the whole Bible. Should we talk about Jeremiah? We're going we're gonna to go backward from Isaiah for a second. We really, we're going to go backward. Because I like Isaiah a lot more than I like Jeremiah. I just want you to know. Not because I think Jeremiah is bad. I, 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 this is just really hard. One of the first things we read, remember, is that the Babylonians are the instrument of God's wrath. Almost like they have no will. They're, they're like a, a paddle for spanking. And Jeremiah says, I'm going to punish the punisher. <laughs> I'm going to exile the one who exiled you. Well, wait a minute, they were your instruments. Are you going to punish them for doing what you wanted them to do? This seems very capricious to me. Of course, when not taken literally, I think what he's trying to say is, I mean, they'll have to pay for their own mistakes just like you did, right? And, and they're making mistakes, and they'll be accountable too. But at surface level, I, don't, I just I don't love that reading. I'm going to punish the punisher. <laughs> a 
You thought being an executioner was a great job until you read Jeremiah. He, he tells you another name, Ephraim, is the name for Judah. So you'll encounter that more. Ephraim or Ephraim is just is, is equivalence, right? It's just like Pitt means Sheol, Ephraim means Judah, Ariel, Zion means Jerusalem. It's just, you ever read War and Peace? Anybody read that? It's supposed to be a masterpiece, I think, because if you read the whole thing, like you deserve a, an award. Um, <laughs> every character in the book, and there's like 500 of them, have four different nicknames, and you'd never know that unless you were Russian, right? That Natalia is also like Nikita and Babushkita. Like those all mean the same thing. So, so <laughs> Tolstoy didn't tell you that in the book, and you thought there were now 1,500 characters, and there were just 500 with three names, and this is sort of how that goes. <laughs> um, Jeremiah does say, I'll gather, this is another shepherd, I'll gather the scattered, I'll bring them all together, including the lame, and that's an interesting image, right, that, that, that even lame sheep are, are considered important to God, and they're part of the flock. That, that one's an, that's a good image, that's a good one. Um, he says, no more will it be said that the parents ate sour grapes, and their children's teeth are set on edge, but each one will pay for their own sins. That seems like, wow, I can't believe God was ever harsh like that, that the parents would eat sour grapes and children's teeth are set on edge. But, of course, you know that that's true. <laughs> because if your parents abused alcohol while you were in utero, you will pay for that, not them. I mean, it will have minor health repercussions for your parents, but the greatest ones will be for you. In some ways, that reflects reality. And that comes right back to the low places, right? I mean, children of poverty in some ways, suffer more than their parents do. This is just, it's, this is just the Bible being real, real. And maybe this is Jeremiah saying, hopefully, it doesn't work like that, that being born down here makes you further down. Hopefully, wherever you're born, you have equal access to dignity. Interestingly enough, free market capitalists like Adam Smith that was the goal of the free market, was that the market would raise people to even levels of dignity. I don't hear a lot of that concern in modern-day ultra-capitalist fundamentalists. <laughs> but Adam Smith believed that the market would do that. A and, and then, of course, so did Trotsky and Lenin. They just wanted to do it a different way, but they had the same concern, right? I'm not an economist. I don't understand that. Um, but I do understand the reality of that situation. You know, that's a, this is a tough, tough, tough situation. I think. Hopeful to think it won't be like that anymore. I, I, we haven't seen that day come, though. I don't think. You know, if you're involved in child welfare at all, right? I mean, abused children, foster children, their teeth are set on edge for the wine that they're their parents drank, if that makes sense. Um, Jeremiah says something really interesting to us. Um, I'm going to cleanse the people of their sin, and even though I've wounded them, I will heal the wounds that I make. It's tough still to imagine God wounding people and then healing them, right? Because maybe you shouldn't have wounded them. <laughs> <laughs> But the wounds came from somewhere, so, so he's dealing with this reality, right, that even, that even difficult things can be healed. And, you know, um, 
these people are precursors to what Paul says in that great verse, Romans 8, 28. We know in all things that God works for the good of those who love God and are called in according to God's purpose. That's not a good translation of the verse, but that's the one I memorized as a kid. Um, it sort of says that no matter what, how, what tragedy befalls you, God's going to use it to accomplish some greater good. Really, a better translation of that verse is, <coughs> in all things, God is able to work for the good of those who love God and are called into God's purpose. Think about the difference between God doing it and God's ability to do it. Seems like the second says that if we're willing to participate in God, even tragedy can give life to other people later. If you go with the first reading, God causes tragedy. I like the second one better, which is a better translation, I think. And of course, God's capability then depends upon our partnership. <laughs> I think the verse Jeremiah can, can read this way, depending on how we, we approach him. Jeremiah has good images, right? He sort of says, my covenant with Israel is secure as my covenant with the day and the night, which is pretty secure so far, right? Um, <laughs> lovely image. If you take it at face value, it's a little hard. I will be faithful and repay kindness and grace to the thousandth generation, but I will punish guilt to the next generation. At face value, it's like, wow, why are you going to punish the next generation? How about just this one? But, but really, consider the magnitude here. Two generations versus a thousand. <laughs> I think that's what we're supposed to fixate on, is just the, the, the numerical difference of God's willingness to reward and be gracious and graceful. It, it, it outnumbers that much. This, of course, is the passage that we read on Sunday at Lessons and Carols, right? I'll give my people a new heart. I'll write my laws in their hearts. It will be a heart of flesh and no longer a heart of stone. And God will do it for us. We don't even have to be willing and God will do it. I mean, then that's, that's nice. Actually, now that we've gone over Jeremiah, I like him a little bit more than I thought I did. <laughs> this morning, I thought I liked him last. <laughs> I didn't have the mulled wine, and I didn't have the spirit of Nicholas to, you know, make me generous. <laughs> Any other thoughts about Jeremiah? I know this has to be really boring. I'm just going through what I think are highlights. And, and anyway, thanks for sticking through it. Ezekiel, we ready to move to Ezekiel? You ready to handle something really strange? <laughs> um, you know, I think if you start with the premise that sometimes actions speak louder than words, sometimes actions speak louder than words, it helps explain a lot of Ezekiel. And just think through, in 1988, you're watching on the news, and there were those tanks in Tiananmen Square, and there's that guy with a shopping bag, and he stood in front of the tank, and the tank stopped. And he didn't say anything, he just stood there. Now, now I'm not exactly sure what happened when the news clip ended, I don't know if the tank ended up running him over. Like, we don't know, because, you know, yeah, we just don't know. I think they did cart him off, actually. Uh, I don't know what happened after that. <clears throat> but we knew in that moment, right, that he didn't even have to say anything, and that if he had, it probably would have weakened his resistance. You know, there was something incredible about him just doing that act. And there's another thing that's important, too, um, uh, has anybody seen the Guarnica before, the Picasso? It's in, I think it's in Barcelona. 
You know this one, the Guarnica? I think maybe his most favorite, Pablo Picasso, no? I saw it in a textbook. It's a painting. It actually represents the, 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 the Spanish War under Franco. And each person in the Guarnica, I mean, they're all abstract, weird, ugly animals, you know, uh, represent, like, people. And if you have a book that explains it to you, um, you sort of get insight into why he caricatured them and the animals that he did. And then this thing that looks like my daughter drew when she was four all, all of a sudden looks like a social commentary that's complex and, and, and really quite, quite creative, you, you know? Sort of like when you, when you read Watership Down and you thought it was about rabbits. Um, <laughs> and, of course, it's not about rabbits at all. Um, you got it, right? It's, it's sort of this thinly veiled commentary on um, ugly reality with a small R. Well, I'd seen it in textbooks, and again, I thought, wow, there's not a lot of skill involved. And then when I went, you know, it's like eight feet tall. It's huge. The Guarnica is just this huge thing, you know. And, and, I, and I realized, like, wow, um, some people in the world are artsy. And, and <laughs> that has to be explained to me because I'm not. So I don't think that way. And I wonder what it is like to be artsy all the time. It's like the first two chapters of Ezekiel, just <laughs> to make that clear. Because <laughs> it's weird, but I will explain it to you, if you'd like. I mean, in a very coarse sense, what he sees is a wheel in a wheel in a wheel. And there's four of these wheels. And in the middle of the wheels is a cart holding a throne. And the throne is tethered to four four-headed, not four-headed, four four-faced beings that are covered with eyeballs, and the wheel and the wheel and the wheel are all covered with eyeballs. And that just sounds really strange, except remember that Ezekiel is writing from Babylon, so he's one of those people with a graduate degree. He's extremely literate and, and, and a scribe, and the people have been carted into exile, and they're wondering... Wow, God lives in Jerusalem, and we're in exile. Has God abandoned us? Where's God? And of course, what Ezekiel has is a vision of God sitting in a chariot, in a throne, and the chariot goes with them. <laughs> it's throne chariot. And the things, the, the weird things that have the face of a human and an eagle and an ox and a lion what do you know that's the prototype for the images of the gospelers? I don't know if you know this. If you've ever seen Matthew, Mark, Luke, John depicted in art, they have those faces. So John's the eagle because he has the high theological view of Jesus. He has the eagle eye view. And Luke is the ox and Matthew's the man and Mark is the lion. And this is, tells you what a cherubim looked like. It's not like the Sistine Chapel with that fat baby Raphael drew. It's this monster, <laughs> which has four faces that are looking in all the directions of the compass rose. And they're covered with eyeballs to help them look in all the other directions. And God's chariot is covered with eyeballs so that God is aware of everything happening on the globe and knows everything in the four different directions and every other direction there is, and God is going with the people. Why did Ezekiel need a whole chapter to do that? Because he's an artist. <laughs> I don't understand art, but I understand translations of it. And so that's a simple translation. Interestingly enough, this vision of God in a, it's called a Merkava in, in Hebrew, a Merkava is a typical mystical image. So maybe you've heard of the Baal Shem Tov before, maybe you haven't, but the Baal Shem Tov is the one sort of accredited 
uh, with, with founding Kabbalah. Maybe you've heard of Kabbalah, right? Jewish mysticism based on a book, the Zohar. Um, Madonna considers herself a Kabbalist. She's not because women can't do it. Sorry, they just can't. And you have to be initiated by a master. You can't just read the Zohar and get it. It's mystical and it's got rites and all that, just like the, the Freemasons do. Um, anyway, the Baal Shem Tov had mystical images of God sitting in a throne chariot. Uh, so, so these are, I'm not a mystic either. But if I were, I would see God in a chariot, because people typically do. And uh, I would also see a crystal dome of the sky and a sapphire floor, which Ezekiel does. Those are just the things that you read. Mystical people see that stuff. So those are the first two chapters. If you're buying it, you feel a little bit better. <laughs> then we get into some wonderful things like God's breath or spirit came into me, and that's when he became inspired. Well, this is, this is interesting, right? That's what ins inspiration means is you breathe in, you breathe in something that is extraordinary, and, and that's it. I, bre I breathe in the breath of God. And then God said, eat this scroll, and he eats the scroll, and it tastes really good. It's sweet to him, and by digesting it, he's so saturated with God's word that now he can proclaim it. In the book of Revelation, John eats the scroll, and it tastes bitter. You because the news is not as good. <laughs> I just want you to be prepared for when we get there. God says, listen, Ezekiel, um, the people are hard of hearing. And, and Ezekiel says, yes, they are. In fact, if I tell them this word that I've digested, they won't listen. And God says, you're not accountable for whether they listen. You're accountable for whether you proclaim it. And that's an interesting little, little ditty there, isn't it? <laughs> I would have saved myself a lot of sleepless nights as a parent if I really bought into that. I've decided as a parent I'm accountable for what they do with what I put in instead of what I put in. You ever parented that way? <laughs> sort of nerve-wracking. I think it's why I have gray hair. Um, yeah. Oh, I stay up after they're in the house. <laughs> Yes. Um, well, um, this is an interesting thought, and it actually reminds me of the, of the age-old argument about when people are in need, or when people say they're in need, what our response should be. Well, we can't give them resources because they might abuse them. They might spend that money on drugs and alcohol. You know this, and that is a real possibility. Of course, um, I'm going to move on from this one, too. I'm not just going to rest here. But it seems like we may not be accountable for what they do with what we give them. We might be accountable for whether we give them something or not. Now, of course, when somebody is thirsty and you give them liquid arsenic, you've given them a gift of sorts, they have a drink. Of course, it will kill them. So, so we know to think through gifts that we give. But I do want to suggest that it's not always just about gifts of resources. Part of the reason I think we have the bags is because when we're asked for a resource, we can give them a resource that they can't get into much trouble with, you know? But I have noticed, because people do ask me for things a lot, especially when I'm wearing this, um, I've learned this lesson when I've gone to places of the world um, that the easiest way to get out of a market situation that involves haggling is to not respond to somebody. So if somebody's like, hey, you want this scarf? If I say something to them, 
it's going to take a lot of my time because they're not going to say, oh, no, have a nice day. There's going to be something else, you know, you know, so you just ignore. And I think I've gotten very used to ignoring people in this country because it's efficient. And honestly, I might feel bad if I looked at them. <laughs> but I wonder if we aren't accountable for giving people dignity, even if the answer's no. I wonder if we aren't accountable for saying, friend, I'm not going to give you money. I don't even know if I have any, but I'm not going to. <laughs> it seems mean, but I can tell you it's extremely rare that somebody makes eye contact with somebody who asks for something. Interesting to think, right, again, that, that we're really not accountable for results. We're just accountable for inputs. I mean, it's just, it's really interesting. Again, I, I, I'm still coming back to, as a parent who has still kids in my house, how much stress I put on the, the outcome of what I put in. And, and I know cognitively that if I could focus just on what I put in, my life would be a lot easier and probably theirs would too, because I'd be a lot less stressed over them, <laughs> which would make them a lot more likely to receive my inputs the way I'd like them to receive them, <laughs> as gifts instead of as burdens. Uh, this is an interesting thought, though, you know, it's an interesting thought. Then comes the weird stuff, right, the weird stuff. Like he ties, supposed to tie himself up with ropes and lay on his left side 390 days. I mean, that's a long time, can I say? <laughs> and, and then he's supposed to lay on his right side for 40 days. And I'm actually not really sure about what the numbers mean. The, the scripture tells you that it's 390 years. That's one day per year that the northern tribes are scattered. Well, that scattering happened in 722. And if you deduct 390, you would get it 332. And the only thing significant that happens in 332 is that Alexander of Macedon conquers the entire known world. Maybe in so doing, the people are liberated. I don't know the answer, but that's, that would be the date, 332. Uh, the other one would be laying on your right side for 40 days, one day to represent each year per Judah's exile, but the, the exile lasted longer than that. The, the, the shortest it lasted was between 586 and 540. That's 46 years. Ezekiel was exiled probably 596, so that would put him into 556, but they weren't set free then. Um, remember, 40 is a biblical number, can mean a long time, but there is something weird about the certainty of the digits. Suffice it to say, this is an artist. <laughs> I mean, he, and he's willing to put his work into his art, right? I mean, that's a long time. The other things he does are he makes Ezekiel bread. Anybody bought Ezekiel bread before? It's like $9 a loaf. Yeah. It's supposed to be really healthy, and a lot of people say, look, the Bible gives you the recipe, so it's healthy. It's made out of scraps. <laughs> it's made out of, it's, it's like you, you used flour, and you used um, 
lentils and you used sawdust. I mean, you just used whatever you could find because there wasn't anything, right? That's the real recipe is you make bread out of whatever you can find. And then, and then the, the fortunate thing, right, is that um, you have to cook it over your own dung. And they didn't tell you that they did it at the factory, did they, right? <laughs> Ezekiel says, God, that's gross. Can I use cow dung? And the answer is yes, but that's still, like, that's just that's some poopy bread. So, like, now it's supposed to be this top-notch healthy bread. It's in your grocery freezer section, but it really is a symbol of poverty. I mean, just so you remember, nobody thought, like, wow, Ezekiel, you're really shedding weight. You're under some health secret. They were like, why are you living like a poor person? <laughs> and his answer was, because all them people back in Jerusalem, they, they're poor like this. You can make it at home. It probably is healthy. I don't know. It's got so many different things in it. The next thing he does is he plays war. You know, you did this as a child probably. Um, you staged epic battles in history, even if they were like between He-Man and Skeletor, or um, like, like not, not make-believe people, right? But what Ezekiel does that's real naughty is, is he shows like his people losing <laughs> in a public way. Now this is the big man in the public park doing something children do. In, unlike the children who may not know better, he makes their team lose. This would be like coming home from World War II and finding your children like walking around in America saying Heil Hitler and staging battles in which the Battle of the Bulge takes England. And you would say like, oh, Johnny, don't ever do that in the house again or tell anybody you did it, right? This would be something you had fought against actively and here's the guy doing it. It would make him extremely unpopular. Uh, beyond that, people sort of believe that him doing it was influencing the reality to happen as he portrayed it. We don't do that anymore. We'd say, you're nuts, um, but, but not so much. They, they, they really thought he was participating in the downfall of Jerusalem by showing it losing. And he gives himself a haircut with a sword. <laughs> this is symbolic. Again, this guy's an artist, right? So he chops a third of his hair off and burns it up. He chops the third and scatters it to the wind, and then he chops a third of it off and hacks it into little pieces. And you may say, like, Mike, who looked, who watched him do this? Who cares? I'm sure people were drawn to that like a moth to a flame and <laughs> could not take their eyes off of that. And, of course, it meant really bad stuff. And actions speak louder than words. I mean, that's, I think that's the goal. And basically, he says, God is going to attack Jerusalem like I just depicted. God is going to attack Jerusalem. You may not like this guy. You should be glad you didn't read the rest of the book because he's a priest and he cares about temples, and most of the rest of the book is about temples and temple architecture. The part you like, I think, is chapter 37 about the dry bones. We read this as the Easter vigil, right? And, and notice Ezekiel himself is not confident that the bones can live again. Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? Lord, only you know. <laughs> Meaning, most likely not. However, I shouldn't say no to God. <laughs> and then there's this recreation that happens, right? Where things that are utterly dry and have no hope piece themselves back together, and they even get liquid. I mean, the, the skin comes on there, and they're still lifeless until they're inspired. Right, which is the metaphor, is that Ezekiel's there to inspire these people who have lost their, have had the wind knocked out of them by the exile. I mean, that's sort of the goal. 
The other image that I don't think is as cool, but takes a lot longer to describe, is him taking two bones together. <laughs> one he writes Israel, and one he writes Judah, and he just puts them together. <laughs> that was the one that the artists loved that nobody else thought was great. You know, you've seen those pieces before, like, this is my favorite, and everyone's like, it shouldn't have been. Uh, that other one's a lot better. <laughs> anyway, uh, and that's Ezekiel. Did I miss anything cool for you? Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool to think there, right, that the Bible has so many different genres and voices, even if it's not for you, like many different ways of presentation. Then we get to third Isaiah, and, and you know, we didn't read a lot, a lot of this. Um, Seek the Lord, God wills to be found, and the image goes on to say that God is calling the people. So if God's playing hide and seek, God's hiding like a three-year-old. You ever played hide and seek with a three-year-old? If you don't find them in three seconds, they go like this, over here, <laughs> dad. God is like a bad hide and seek player asking you to find God and giving you lots of clues. <laughs> sort of a nice one, isn't it? Because sometimes don't you feel like God's hiding in your life? I mean, really, God's hiding in your life. Like I just can't seem to find God. And why are you not making yourself evident? And this is an image that in those moments, God's actively giving us clues. <laughs> This is what Jesus preaches his first sermon on. It comes right out of Trito, Isaiah. I read it to you. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting thing. This is when Jesus gives his first sermon. He reads this. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing, and then they want to throw him off a cliff. Uh, and, and I'll explain why. When, we, when I read this to you, it says, this comes from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because God has anointed me. God has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus stops there in the middle of a verse, the middle, and says this has been fulfilled in your hearing. The rest of the verse should say, and the day of vengeance of our God. And it explains why people were upset. He left off the good part. The vengeance. Listen to what God's vengeance looks like, though. This is so interesting. To comfort all who mourn. To provide for those who mourn in Zion. To give them a garland instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Sort of interesting to think what God's vengeance looks like, isn't it? You know, there's that song, my eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. I don't even remember the words, except he's trotting out the, the wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored. You know this one, right? And God's wrath looks like comforting those who mourn. <laughs> well, that's disappointing. I was hoping for like lightning, you know, and like bombs and Godzilla, you know, but... Um, Listen to Isaiah's description of God's vengeance. That's how God gets revenge, comforts the mourning people. Oh, that is, just, again, such a vision beyond my own imagination. And it drives the people of Nazareth crazy, and they want to kill Jesus for just saying that, right? And, and then here's another image of God's vengeance. This is really the one. This was the last one we read in Lessons and Carols, right? This is the one about the wolf and the lamb, and the child will play over the adder's den. 
and the child would lead them. You know, often at night to go to sleep, I think about stuff I hope for. It's not much. You know, I think about, when I say what I hope for, I mean like what I want. Like what I would do if I won the lottery. Um, (laughs) I wouldn't keep much of it. I've got lots of admirable mission objectives for that money, you know. Or sometimes I think about, you know, how quickly I, 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 I want to do my run in the next day if I'm going to do that. Or how nice it would be um, if blank objective happened. Those are the things I want, you know. And somehow there's comfort, it's, it's comforting to review what I want and it puts me to sleep. And, and thinking, about <laughs> thinking about the things that God actually wants that look sort of like this compared to like what I think about will not put me to sleep. I'm, I just want you to know. In fact, it will keep me awake and often make me upset and, and <laughs> that God would want that thing that's good for everybody and not just for me and the people I love. And um, so there we are back to Deuter Isaiah, right? That, that, that this is images of hope that we just can't even fathom. I mean, if the bear lies down with the cow, how is it going to eat? I mean, if they're not predators anymore, I mean, the bear is not going to convert its canines to molars. That doesn't happen in a generation. I mean, how is it going to be sustainable? That's the kind of thing that would bother me and I wouldn't sleep, you know? And, and what it means, right, to lay down with somebody who's been your predator. You know, I, I usually think it's prey. I want the predators gone. I mean, again, this is, this is something so different from that. This is about a reconciliation that's not even biologically possible. I have relationships where I think reconciliation is not biologically possible. I, I mean, I really mean that like I said it. Like, it's not biologically possible. And... and and this is about God's hope, which is like greater than our biology. Well, that's it. Thanks for coming. <laughs> <laughs> and next week we'll read the psalm. I mean, I do. I, you know, what's sad is when you look in the Almy catalog, Almy makes church stuff. What you see is the Agnes Day. I mean, this is what you see. You see the Agnes Day, which is like a lamb with a flag. And you see... Cro- I have it on the chasuble, right, the Advent chasuble. And I like, it's pretty, it's a pretty chasuble, you know. And, and you, see, you see Alpha and Omega, and you see like a burning candle, but you didn't see that. <laughs> I know that'd be a weird thing to see, right? It's, it's weird. The Agnes Day is the Lamb of God. So it's Jesus depicted as the Lamb. You know it's Jesus because he's got a halo with a cross in it, and he's holding a flag that says IHS on it. Um, so it's so it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, but that's not an imagination stretcher for me. You know, like there's nothing really artistic about it. I don't know why they don't make this stuff. This is good. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. Yeah. Well, I hope I hope God fills your imagination, <laughs> and and we'll do Psalms next time. Is that yours personally? Um, you can get it tomorrow. It's mine. I'm giving it.